You are listening to the Sensible Project Manager podcast. Today's topic, Cultural Neuroscience, Cultural Intelligence for Global Project Managers with Samad Aidan. Welcome to the Sensible Project Manager podcast at sensiblepm.com, where you get an insider's edge on practical project management. Now, here is your host, Mark Phillippe. Welcome to the Sensible Project Manager podcast. My name is Mark Phillippe, and I am the Sensible Project Manager. A few weeks ago, I had a special guest on the Sensible Project Manager Hangout who spoke about a very interesting topic on how cultural neuroscience can help a project manager learn to communicate in a global world by better understanding different cultures. This hangout occurred during the holiday season, and I've held off on releasing this podcast because I didn't want this topic to be lost in the hustle and bustle that sometimes accompanies the holidays. I hope you are as fascinated in this discussion as I was. And now, today's feature. Hi, welcome to the Sensible Project Manager Hangout. This is Hangout number 23. My name is Mark Philippi. Today we're going to have an interesting discussion. We've got a special guest, Samad Adan. Did I say that right, Samad? Yes, Adan. Yeah. Adan. Thanks, Adan. Mark. <laughs> All right, so uh, today's going to be very interesting. I am going to be in complete learning mode here just to set up the topic a little bit, and then we're going to go introduce Samad. So, Thinking about uh, the worldwide environment that we work today, project managers today quite often are leading projects in a very global fashion. Project managers might have teams that are spread all over the world. Uh, they, they certainly have customers all over the world. And the discussion we're going to talk a little bit about today is cultural neuroscience, cultural intelligence for global project managers. Now, what that means to me is I'm sure going to be different now than it will be when we get done with our discussion because that's going to educate me and hopefully that it'll help us become much more aware of cultures in which we are going to be working in a global project environment. With that said, at least that's what I'm looking forward to. And uh, like I said, I am sure that I will be very much in the learning mode today. So with that, Samad, just a little bit of an introduction for yourself. Tell us a little bit about what you do. I know that you also have a podcast. Talk a little bit about that, your your website, and and let us get started with just kind of before we actually get to the topic. Get just introduce yourself, your experience, and and what what you've been doing lately. Well, thank you, Mark. I, first, I want to thank you so much for the opportunity to hang out with you and share uh, just this topic that I'm really passionate about, and I've been digging deeper in into in the last few years. And so a little bit about me. I am a project manager by day and for the rest of the time I enjoy researching and learning about leadership and influence and psychology and all things related to what makes people tick. How do how can you move people from one position into another position in their thinking or in, in persuasion and, and influence. So that's just fascinating to me. So project management, uh, my background is in IT. I spent last 20 years actually in IT. I grew up in IT shops, typical organizational IT, done a lot of the roles of technical roles. And then at some point, all the technical problem solving uh, lost its uh, thrill and, and zest. And so I thought, you know, I think there are bigger issues to tackle than simply figuring out how to get a piece of code to run faster. Perhaps the biggest technology challenge is the human is 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 the people. I I, I felt that the people are the most uh, uh, sophisticated and complex technology that I wanted to understand more. So so my 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 new thinking is that the people are the technology, and and so so anyway, so I developed into project manager, but then I realized that. You know, understanding how to run projects is one thing. Understanding how to actually deal with the internal struggles of basically being confident, being assertive, uh, handling uh, when people are intimidating or uh, handling pushback, uh, getting people that don't get along to make decisions. I felt that that's where the project management side really is reached its limit and now something else needs to take over 
And that thing, you know, we label it leadership. Sometimes we label it soft skill, whatever it is. It was just this big unknown to me. Uh, but I knew that there was something out there that I needed to, to explore further. So that's a little bit about my journey, about how I, you know, about my background, where I came from and the type of problems that I really felt I want, I feel very excited about solving. Very good. Thank you again for being here. I've been watching you, and I've seen you talking a little bit about this in the in the past. And I saw that you were speaking last October, October t- uh, 2013, at the Global Congress with this topic. So at that congress, you you talked about that cultural intelligence. Can you can you take us through a little bit of how that really uh, you've, you've touched a little bit. Go a little bit more in depth on how that really applies to leadership and management. Well, it, it, it was really a natural evolution in trying to understand, uh, trying to understand the dynamics of a, of teamwork. What happens when you bring people together, and um, your job is to basically get them to make a decision, get them to solve a problem, get them to get them to collaborate. And I, I felt that. Um, I felt that I needed, we as project managers needed to step outside of project management to leverage some of the work that's already being done, this body of work that's being done outside of project management in the social studies, in neuroscience, in psychology. And I felt that, that we need to tap into that knowledge. It doesn't mean that just because we created this field of project management that we, we can, that we cannot be multidisciplinary about our approach. We can borrow from other fields, what's, what other fields have found already about human behavior that we can tap into. We don't have to simply just feel that we, that project management is, is just the boundary that we need to stay within. Um, and I felt that we need to, as project managers, as we develop into more of a advanced uh, projects where we, we're solving more complex type of issues and dealing with more uh, complex projects and complex uh, stakeholders, um, dynamics, and as we start dealing with higher levels in the organization, when we're starting dealing with executives, when we're starting dealing with uh, senior vice presidents, as as sometimes members of our project, and that was really the revelation for me: is that if I have a very high level executive in my organization as a project team member, that changes the dynamics. I cannot assume that I will treat that person or I would treat that person um, the same way that I would treat, for example, a developer. You know, it, it, it just became clear to me that for me personally, I need to understand a little bit how to navigate the, you know, these types of internal dialogue in one, in one way, um, but also understanding what happens when you add culture on top of it. You know, we assume sometimes that, you know, a project management is project management. You know, if I can project, if I can manage projects in, in the U.S., then how different would it be if, if my team members are from other cultures? Sometimes it just feels like we have this platform that we all, at some point, once we get into project, we all put on our hats that are, that are identical and that we all talk the same language. And the reality is that's not true. Culture never goes away, never disappears. It's always playing in the background. And I was amazed by this body of work that's being done in neuroscience about decision-making, about collaboration, about, for example, trust, fairness, certainty, status. Just how does the brain react to when there is a threat to, this, to its status? How does the brain really react to fairness? Is there some neurological differences in how we behave or how our brain behaves and, uh, you know, when we are under, for example, uh, a threat of unfairness, when we feel that we're being treated unfairly. And so, and what happens then if there is body of work about unfairness that has already been done in social studies and neuroscience and psychology, especially neuroscience, because it really appeals to me specifically. So, Sabad, can we, can we stop yeah. for just a second? Sure. Um, I need to just step back so I can understand this a little bit better. Yeah. Forget about the cultural part of it right now. Help me understand, you, I think you're starting to explain that, but I'm not quite getting it yet. What is neuroscience? Because I'm not educated on that. What is neuroscience itself? What is okay, that? great. Thank you for stopping me because I was, I was on this, uh, <laughs> uh, going to this idea and I needed to stop and, and, and give a context. And so, yes, yeah, so neuroscience is really looking at 
and 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 it's, so there's neuroimaging is really what has revolutionized the study of human behavior. Uh, we had social studies at the beginning where people, uh, where scientists would conduct social behavioral studies where they could they would test, for example, they would have, for example, a game of gambling, a gambling game, and they will test, for example, the behavior of people when uh, they introduce some kind of dynamic of unfairness. Um, that's just an example. And then they would observe. So they basically, they would just observe what they can see in the behavior um, of, of, of the subjects. Um, and then, then they, are, they also ask the subjects for their, uh, for their assessment or their thoughts, uh, their experience. And then they would make a, an integration of both, what, what the scientists have observed as well as what the subject has said about what they experienced. But then, afterward, neuroscience came in with the invention of um, the fMRI scanner or the MRI scanner or the neuroimaging scanners uh, because now this technology is able to show with a level of details what is happening in the brain, what, as, what parts of the brain light up, what parts of the brain get activated under a certain reaction. And the idea is if we can understand how the brain reacts or re what regions of the brain reacts. For example, there is a region in the brain called the brain's braking system. So this is the part that would stop you from going and gambling, for example, or going and, and uh, committing a certain uh, behavior that is, for example, illegal. So and so this bra brain braking system, obviously, it is stronger in some people and it's weaker in some others, obviously. But when, when the scientists study these regions, they say, okay, how does this region react under certain circumstances? And so that is this body of work that is being generated in the field of neuroscience. And it is really a multidisciplinary field because it draws from the work that's already been done in the social studies and in anthropology and in, uh, and in psychology. And then it it subjects these experiences uh, to, uh, to, for example, the neuroimaging and, and try to understand, make more sense out of how the brain really reacts under certain stimuli. Great. Thank you. That helps a lot. Does it make sense? Yes, it does. So if I just to restate just from, from my brain, it's, it's that study, it, it's applying the technologies that we have today for those, is it the fMRI? Yes. Uh, watching the brain, what happens in the activity of the brain, while there's interactions between people, yes, is that yes. is that it's introducing that that's part of that that interaction between people. Is that correct? Absolutely. Let me give you just one example. One study that is very famous is called the Cyberball study, and the Cyberball study uh, had uh, the the scientists had the subjects be in this scanner in the uh, MRI scanner, and they. Uh, made them think that they were playing this game of ball, of tossing the ball with two other players, when in fact there were no other two players, it was just a computer that was simulating. But the people in this kind of thought they were actually playing with different people. And so the first part of the game, it's a normal game, the three players are equally sharing the ball and tossing the ball to each other. And then at one point, the, the subject uh, and their study gets excluded from the game. And while, the re while this is happening, the scientists are watching to see what reactions happen in, in their brain. And then when they, so basically when they finished this, this experiment, they asked the subject. They said, uh, how do you feel? Or obviously the person really felt very, they felt rejected and it felt extremely bad. They felt completely isolated and, and, um, and that there, there was something wrong with them. And so that's not surprising, right? What is surprising, however, is that the imaging studies showed that the region of the brains that are normally dedicated to processing physical pain, uh, if you get injured, were the same circuitry, was the same circuitry that processed that feeling of rejection. And so this was an initial study that actually showed that, in fact, emotional pain or social pain, as far as the brain is concerned, is B is processed with the same circuitry and the question is does that emotional pain and social pain have the same intensity and, and um, impact on, on the person or on the brain? And obviously we know that people have that feeling about being rejected. They say I'm hurt, so they use they use words such as hurt. The language even uh, uses the same language as the physical kind of injuries and physical pain. 
And so this is an example of how neuroscience has revealed how the brain processes physical pain versus emotional pain. And, and, it was, and then that led to other studies to dig even deeper and see what's the implications of this type of research. Very good. Thank you. That, that example helps, helps understand. So now let's begin to apply that to project management. So you, you've talked, you, you were, I, before I stopped you, maybe you need to continue on with where you were at, but I think what we wanted to talk about is talking about the challenges on applying what you're learning here towards leadership across cultural teams. Yeah, and, and I think the, the first when I started looking into neuroimaging, it, it wasn't specific to solving any particular problem. It was more about, well, how can we apply neuroscience research this, you know, to, to leadership and management and project management? Can we apply some of that to how, how we lead? And, and so that was great. And, um, um, I spoke a couple of, uh, I spoke in 2011 and 2012, uh, at PMI about that, about the emotional brain and the structure and function of the emotional brain and how some of, there are some social drivers such as certainty, status, autonomy, fairness, and relatedness that whenever there is a threat to those, the brain reacts and, and then it leads to a certain behavior in projects and in teams. And that can explain some of the challenges we face when we're trying to bring people together. Well, then this about a couple of years ago, I realized that actually one of the biggest issues is when you add culture to a team, it intensifies the type of problems you have to deal with as a project manager because now you are, you know, you know you're introducing a different mindset, uh, you know, a different understanding of what leadership is sometimes, a different understanding of hierarchy, a different understanding of what does it mean to be included in a decision-making versus being told what to do, for example, in some cultures. And so culture then became, wow, you know, if you are going to navigate in different cultures uh, throughout the day uh, as a project manager, which means you could probably have a meeting in the morning where you may have team members, one from Brazil, two from China, three from India, maybe one from Russia. And then in the afternoon, you would have a meeting with business users maybe that are from Cincinnati. And so as a, as a project manager, the most important skill that I saw was, this, was the ability to adapt. And so the ability to adapt means you, the ability to be able to, to change, to, to basically see what is needed in this particular situation and be able to change and adapt. And so it's more of a mindset change. And so that led me to this, this idea that actually culture uh, requires, requires you to adapt to different cultures. And adaptation is a mental process. Adaptation to be adapting or to adapt to different modes of thinking is a very complex cognitive process. So it made perfect sense to say, well, shouldn't we be understanding, well, how does the brain do that? How, how does it navigate? How, how does the brain, for example, detect the mental state of somebody else? How does the brain uh, detect the emotion and try to understand the emotions of somebody else? What's the processes involved? And when you add culture on top of it, does culture change anything? And basically the outcome or the findings is this, yes, indeed, uh, culture does change or does have an impact and shape how we understand each other, what we pay attention to, what we, what we remember even from a conversation. Culture even determines or shapes what it is that we pay attention to when we are looking at an image or looking at an, an, an object, for example. So that, that kind of the link between neuroscience in general and then culture, the research that's being done in cultural neuroscience, and really cultural neuroscience research leads into or helps us develop cultural intelligence. And cultural intelligence actually research has found that, yes, indeed, there is this thing called cultural intelligence, and it does make a difference. It does make a difference in terms of what may, you know, uh, those who are effective in leading teams and uh, globally and those who are not effective. And, and, and so that, that, that kind of understanding of, of, cultural neuroscience, uh, of cultural neuroscience and how we can link it to cultural intelligence and then connect that to the challenges that we face as project managers leading global teams is just the right fit. It's t to me, it's the right subject matter that, that we need to dig deeper into and, and, and understand understand uh, how we can leverage that. Uh, and just to give you one last thought, uh, the, the biggest issue 
for project managers when we go and start leading teams, especially when we are used to one culture. Like we, we live, for example, here in the U.S., and we, for example, we work for large part of our career, for example, working, for example, in a government agency, a local government agency where there is not uh, any global or international connection. And so then you leave that job and as part of your career growth, you join, for example, a software company that has uh, software teams distributed in different parts of the world. Uh, and so the biggest challenge is developing that psychological that psychological and and mental toughness to be able to say, I'm going to see certain behaviors and certain reactions from different people, from different cultures, but I am going to have the resilience and I'm going to have the agility to be able to put that behavior in its context, to understand it and be able to determine what reaction, how am I going to respond. And so that self-awareness is so critical in, in the in, in, this, in developing this cultural intelligence and developing this ability to adapt to different cultures. So I hope I, I, hope I, I answered uh, your question. Yeah, you've talked a little bit about cultural intelligence. Tell us a little bit more about what you mean by cultural intelligence. Is, so, that, is that just a gathering of the information about the different cultures? It's actually, there are about four dimensions to cultural intelligence. So uh, basically there is a body of work under this umbrella called cultural intelligence. And there's a framework that basically shows what are the the four essential elements that need to be in place for a person, uh, basically to determine a person's uh, cultural intelligence level, as well as it informs how we can develop cultural intelligence. And these four components are motivation, uh, knowledge, strategy, and, and action. And so motivation is what is your motivation uh, or what will motivate you or what is motivating you to want to understand about uh, different cultures and want to immerse yourself into, into becoming culturally intelligent leaders. So what is your motivation? And so that could be, you know, you want to be effective, you want to be successful, uh, you want to be able to solve uh, problems that are more complex uh, than simply uh, problems that you find in your own culture. Then there is uh, knowledge. Knowledge is that piece where you gather information like like what we're talking about, about the differences between different cultures. So you you be, educate yourself about what is the difference between East and West? What is the difference between an American and somebody from Sweden as they approach, for example, leadership or their expectation of what a leader behaves like and, and acts like? Um, so that's knowledge. So gaining an, an understanding. Strategy then is developing, in my view, is developing that adaptive, uh, that adaptive mindset, that agile mindset. And that's through practice. Uh, that's through combination of the knowledge as well as you're practicing, getting yourself into situations where you are interacting with different members of, uh, of other cultures and you're educating yourself, but not just knowledge as in book knowledge, but more like embodied practice. Uh, where you are actually experiencing and making mistakes and recovering from them and asking forgiveness and developing and maturing. Uh, and then finally is action, which is where you bring your motivation, your knowledge, your strategy into actually doing the actual interactions and observing and watching what's basically the impact that you're making on somebody else, how you're reacting to somebody else, and pulling all of those four components together. So that's in general, what is cult, what the, this body of work that is referred to as cultural intelligence. Thank you. Let's talk a little bit more about your study then a little bit later on, and I want to see if we can put some application to how we can uh, apply that as project managers on global projects. But first, let's talk a little bit about what is your research telling you about how culture changes the way we think? as individuals and as, I guess, as project managers as well. All right. Uh, so one of the things that uh, that I talked about in the presentation, and, and, and I'm going to share just about uh, three, uh, three examples, three research studies that show, you know, how the brain shapes thinking. And so the first one is about perception, uh, what it is that we see, for example. Let me back up. I want to talk about one research study that is actually really interesting that actually created the foundation for a lot of the research that came in later. And that is about the self, like how 
do we think about the self, which turns out that this idea of self-control or how we think of ourselves in relation to others became actually very central in all the research that I saw and that I, that I read about in, in cultural neuroscience as well as in cultural psychology and cultural uh, social studies. So this idea of self, how we think about ourselves in relation to others, it's really critical and it became uh, very central in, in most of this research. And so one study that I wanted to talk about uh, initially, uh, and then I'll give you examples about shape, you know, how culture shapes the, the, the thinking, is this idea that um, you know, the, the, this research wanted to find out, is there a difference between Eastern people from East Asia, for example, and people from the West, from um, uh, the United States, how their brain reacts or responds to when they're thinking about themselves versus when they're thinking about uh, others. And so this study looked at, uh, looked at subjects, like I mentioned, from China and from, and from the West, and they showed them while they are in the scanner, uh, neuroimaging scanner, they showed them adjectives that describe themselves as well as those that describe someone who is close to them, uh, like a mother. And then, then they showed them uh, adjectives that describe somebody else, like somebody, like a president of, of China or the United States. And so what was interesting is that when they looked at the brain activation, when the, when the Western person, someone from the U.S., for example, was looking at an, an adjective that describes them versus their mother, the, the part of the brain that was associated with, uh, with information about the self was activated, but only when they were thinking about themselves. For the Chinese, however, um, it was different. For the Chinese, that same region activated when they were thinking about themselves as well as when they were thinking about their, their mother. So this was one of the first studies that showed there is something here. There, there are differences. Um, how is it that, they, for example, the Chinese brain perceived themselves, uh, the self and the, a close other, for example, the mother, processed that information with the same region while the, while the, the Western uh, actually showed no interaction, showed no activation when they were thinking about the mother. So this was one of the first indications that indeed there are variations. And so that led to, to additional research uh, and uh, just in the recent years. And I want to talk about uh, three quick, quickly three studies. One that wanted to s just look at a basic thing. For example, when people are looking at an object or a picture, for example, what is a, an Eastern uh, brain focuses on versus the Western brain? And so they had subjects uh, in, in this study uh, basically look at different backgrounds. Like they looked at an image of an elephant, for example, just by itself. And then they, look, they compared that to when they showed an image of the elephant and in a background, for example, by a lake. And then they compared that to an image where it's just the background. There's no uh, focal object. There's no uh, elephant. And so they wanted to see how each brain reacts. And so what they found is that, again, the Western brain showed activation when there was, uh, you know, especially in the area that's processing objects, in an area of the brain that is uh, it's called, the, the, I mean, it's object processing region. It showed more activation in that, in that region for the Western, but for the, for the Asian, it didn't show anything significantly different when the object, when the image had a, a focal object versus just a background, and so what that what that led to the conclusion is that this is consistent with the idea that people from the east in general, and this is a generalization, uh, obviously, they are more they look at objects and things more in their context as connected to a a context that are interconnected with their environment. Well, in the Western world. Uh, people tend to look at objects as standalone, as independent, uh, and not uh, in relation to to its context. So th that's basically one uh, one example that showed that there is indeed some differences between um, somebody who is from a from a, uh, what they what is referred to in social studies an individualist culture, uh, such as in the West, versus a, a collectivist uh, culture that is from the East. This is also referred to as independent kind of social orientation or cultural orientation versus an interdependent uh, cultural orientation. And, and so that's uh, one study. And then so I'll just give you one third study. And, and that is uh, looking at, well, if these changes 
are obviously in you know how people look at objects, but what about when people try to determine or infer other people's mental states? And so one example that uh, study in 2010 uh, looked at how someone from Japan uh, and someone from the U.S. Uh, and someone from the U.S., for example, how when you l show them just for example, the eyes of people from their own cultures versus people from other cultures, if you just show them the eyes of a, of an, of a person, will they be able to determine whether that person is irritated, is sarcastic, uh, worried, or, or friendly? And so you would think that um, both uh, subjects uh, will, will basically be able to have the same kind of pattern, but, uh, but you know, whether they, they're either going to be good at determining certain emotions or certain mental states or not. But what it turns out is that people were more accurate, obviously, which makes sense, people were more accurate when they were looking at pictures of people that are of their own culture than people that were from other cultures. So that, that should not be surprising. People are more familiar with people from their own cultures. They understand uh, they can they can feel they can understand um, you know what somebody else is thinking just from their eyes, but what ha what the neuroimaging uh, showed is indeed that when the the American or the Japanese were looking at this uh, at trying to read it's called read the minds in the eyes test. What the what the neuroimaging showed is that the area the region of the brain that's involved usually in mentalizing and, and reasoning and trying to detect someone else's thought that was that part of the brain was more activated actually was activated when the person was trying to read or was this person was reading an image uh, or looking at image of a person of their own culture and so I just you know talked now about these few studies, just just three studies, just to show, just basically, it's just the, uh, what do you call, it's just the tip of the iceberg about what is out there in terms of the research. Those are all interesting. I mean, I, I've experienced projects or interactions with uh, people from different cultures, both inside of projects and, and outside. And certainly I see the differences. It, it is very interesting to me how different people from different cultures think differently and react differently. Can we talk about how that applies to project management? Are there some examples as project managers that we, that you can use your learnings from to apply that to us as project managers? Yes. Uh, thank you. So, I have a, an approach that is a little bit different from what typically is taught in the majority of cross-cultural uh, leadership or cross-cultural management studies. What I saw was that most of these studies and, and training, they try to teach mainly about the differences between different cultures and how you should behave in that particular culture. For example, I call that whether you should kiss, bow, or shake hands when you meet someone, for example. So that that's the majority of what I saw was available in studies of leadership. But the way that I look at it is we need to understand some of the bigger ideas that drive different behavior in cultures, such as, for example, let's say you are a project manager from, uh, from the U.S. and you're working with, for example, someone from India or China. So one of the key things that, that comes up all the time is this idea of uh, how much uh, how much do you involve the person in the decision-making process? Um, do you tell them what to do, or do you engage them in, in developing and co-creating that particular outcome or that particular decision that, that you, uh, or how to do the work? So from a Western culture, people are used to this participative mode and style of decision-making and collaboration, but if sometimes if you are working in some cultures, and, and again, I want to be careful. I'm not saying that all people behave in the same way in India or all people behave in the same way in China. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that there is this continuum for many of these dimensions, such as how do you make decisions with someone from another culture if you are a manager, whether you come in with a participative kind of style in, a, in some cultures, that may run counter to that culture. That may be seen as less assertive. That may be seen as as maybe uh, less competent and that you are less confident in your capabilities. And that's why you're asking the person for their opinion. That's why you're asking the person for their 
for their input. Uh, because it could be that in their culture, what they're used to is they're used to more of a uh, prescriptive kind of, I want you to do this and I want you to do that, and here's how we're going to approach it. Uh, and here's how I want you to approach it. So that, so when you are operating with different cultures, you have to pay attention to what is the context that we are operating in. And that has to do a lot with status. So status, I talk a lot about in status and the neuroimaging about status and how important status is in, in basically all aspects of the decision-making that we're making, that uh, decision-making in our projects and our leadership. And so the decisions then that come in by understanding the status is how assertive do you, do you need to be in a particular culture? The other thing is how formal you need to be. You know, when you're dealing with someone from a different culture, depending on their status, you have to consider the status in your decision of whether you are going to be formal where you are going to be showing respect, uh, showing uh, difference, giving that person the the uh, the the per- perception that that you you recognize their status, you recognize their uh, reputation, and so on, and and so coming into a situation, not taking into account how formal you need to be, and behaving in a certain way that will undermine the, the relationship that will undermine that interaction could actually derail the whole process that you're trying to, to achieve uh, or the outcome that you're trying to achieve. And so this is just a, one, a couple of examples, assertiveness and, and how formal you need to be and also how direct you need to be. For example, example is giving feedback. Someone is late on their project. Someone is late on their deliverable. And in the U.S., uh, you can be direct. Uh, you can be, uh, you can be, uh, as a matter of fact, you could say, this is what I'm, this is what I need. This is what we agreed upon. This is the situation that happened. What are you going to do about it? So this is more direct. Uh, you can feel comfortable in doing that in, in the U.S., for example, in culture, because it's, it's more acceptable. I'm not saying that in all regions and I'm not saying in all circumstances, because you could have someone like a vice president in that, uh, in that meeting or a director. And the way you talk about the way you talk about it obviously will determine the reaction you will get. And so, uh, so how direct you are is something that you will need to pay attention to in a situation by situation. And this is what makes this very difficult. This is what makes this extremely difficult to talk about. Is because it is extremely difficult to say in this particular type of situations you you must do this or you must do that. Instead, what what is critical is to become aware of the of this continuum of, for example, assertiveness, the continuum of, of formality, the continuum of how to be direct, uh, of how to show emotions, uh, how much personal information to disclose, how much autonomy to give to a person versus uh, versus how much uh, closer uh, management. So does that make sense? Yeah, this this will help me. Let me share an experience that I had. Actually, two different things that I've noticed through the time. I've had a, quite a bit of experience. I I live on the west coast of uh, the United States, and I want to talk about two different things, two two different examples. I've noticed that even within the United States, there's cultural differences between the west coast and the east coast, for instance. I have brand projects within the United States, not using any other cultures other than within the United States. And I've noticed that, again, going back to the idea that there's generalization, mm-hmm. but I've noticed that on the West Coast, people are a little bit more uh, laid back, a little bit easier, not as direct. Those people that I've worked with on the East Coast are a little bit more direct. And those cultural differences just between East Coast, West Coast, they can even, to be honest with you, sometimes somebody from the West Coast can be feel like somebody from the East Coast is harsh yeah. or too direct. That's one thing. So an example of that. And then another example is I've worked with teams internationally. It's had Specifically, you mentioned from India. I was working on a team where we had folks that were on the team doing a large implementation of VRP. A number of people were from India and a number of people in the U.S. working out of the U.S. And actually we had a, some team in, in India as well. 
one of the things, one of the specific things that I've noticed in that culture that as I was working with that environment, and I did find myself having to act differently mm-hmm. when I approached the team from India about specifically deliverables. And you had mentioned if, if a deliverable was late or if there was a difficulty with something, those from that culture, they had a tough time describing to me or telling me that it was going to be late. Mm-hmm. Um, they would try really hard. They would instead work to solve the problem without surfacing that information. And in my culture, we want to surface that, that the bad things that are happening as quickly as possible. So that's an example that I've noticed up front with my experiences. Uh, does that tie into the things that you're talking about? Oh, absolutely. I think the second example you mentioned about uh, about uh, trying to do whatever is possible uh, not to this not to surface the issue it has to do with status and has to do with losing losing face and 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 reputation and and also the the fact that the fear of disappointing uh, authority the fear of disappointing you. In fact, um, I was uh, in in the presentation that I did in at PMI in uh, this year in New Orleans, one of the attendees mentioned how one member of her team who was from India came to her at one point almost crying and, and said that, that he thought of her as his mother uh, because uh, he, he, it was in the context of him disappointing her. And she told him, you, you, I'm really disappointed. And that really put that person to, to, to tears um, and the feeling of disappointing this person who he he saw as an authority figure and, and who has, who appreciates and who admires as a leader. And without her asking for it, he, he mentioned this thing that he, she, he perceives her and he thinks of her as his mother and so therefore disappointing her is almost like disappointing his mother. And that to me was very powerful in the sense that this sense of disappointment of basically disappointing you as a, you know, is, is so painful. Is such a social pain, um, such a powerful social pain, that it can, must be avoided at all costs. And even if that means, even if that means trying to figure out, at probably a, a more expensive cost of the project, try to delay surfacing the issue. And so it's a very different mindset that you that you deal with. And also you mentioned about the East Coast, and exactly what you said is absolutely right in the sense that even. Within the United States, the South is very different from the North. I lived in the Midwest. It's very different from the East, the West Coast and the East Coast. In fact, one study showed that people from the Midwest, when they move to one of the coasts, they experience high levels of, of depression and, and just because, um, they feel completely, well, not completely, but they feel that they're out of place, that they, they're missing some of the social connection, some of the social concept of the self. Uh, as it relates to the culture that they grow up in, that, that it's very different. It's almost like being in a different culture. And so I think the most important thing, the message, the most important message that I, that I want to, to convey is the fact that we must really focus on these big ideas, on these big, the big differences in terms of the main core principles or concepts that shape the thinking, such as formality, directness, such as status, fairness, uh, autonomy, and so on. Because then when you are armed with this understanding, your brain will make the, the mental calculations as to what is more appropriate in this particular situation. And with practice, then those, those, that learning becomes embodied and it becomes core of your natural behavior. So it doesn't feel taxing on you to change you or to adapt uh, in different situations because it is really taxing when you have to adapt. It really takes a lot of energy to, to adapt yourself to different situations. It's much more comfortable to be in your default settings. Great. Can we take the next few minutes to give any other suggestions you have that will help us better adapt to cultural changes and differences? And I think that's really, uh, I cannot emphasize enough this, this to me, that's really the, the what's what's driving me and, and, and be, you know, to be very excited about sharing this message is that while it is very challenging, while it can be extremely challenging when you're, for the first time, especially for the first time when you're 
coming into contact with people from different cultures. And, and it's not like you're just traveling there as a tourist, just because a person traveled and, and so on, uh, and even lived in different cultures, not for work, but like, for example, for pleasure, let's say, uh, that doesn't really mean that you have gained the skills needed to, act, to actually lead a group of people to collaboration. So it can be very intimidating and it can, it can be uh, very challenging. What I want to tell people uh, is that it is just a skill that can be developed just like any other skill. You just have to have the motivation. And you know, the biggest motivation right now is that there is no project or there's no organization that is safe from, from being, uh, excuse me, Sorry, <laughs> I should have it. Um, so what I was what I was saying is the fact that um, is the fact that approach this as as a critical uh, part of your developing as a leader and as a project manager. There is no organization, there's no project in the future that's going to be completely one culture or your own culture. It's you're always going to be dealing with some some differences in culture, even when you are working in your own local culture. Have the confidence that you can develop the skill. Have patience also that it will take some time. Educate yourself. Take charge of your education. Take charge of your development. Don't wait for your company to send you to a training. Join my newsletter and look for future webinars and, and future podcasts. We, I'm going to be involving a lot more different uh, thought leaders in this, in this field from neuroscience and their leadership to talk about cultural uh, dimension, but the key message here is take charge of your of your development, take charge of your global leadership development. Add global leadership skills to your portfolio, to your toolbox. It's a do-it-yourself. Keep learning and expanding your knowledge bodies of work that you tap into to be outside the project management. And that's really the advice that I tell that I want to leave our community with. Thank you, Samad. I, I appreciate this. This has been just absolutely fascinating to me. I have a lot to learn about it. And so can you point us to uh, how we can reach out to you? We've, we mentioned you have a podcast, you have a website. Share some of your contact information where we can specifically find some of that, those contacts. And then I will include those in the links and, and any, other, any other documents that you can share with us. That would be great. Okay, thank you, Mark. So one, I have developed a website that is dedicated and a blog that is dedicated to this topic of neuroscience of leadership and cultural neuroscience. It's called neurofrontier.com. It's neurofrontier.com. And that's where I'm putting, I have actually three podcasts that I'm editing right now, and they're going to be extremely exciting. And I highly recommend to our audience to sign up to the newsletter, uh, and I will inform them when these podcasts are posted. So neurofrontier.com, then email me, email me at um, Samad Aidan, my first name and last name, uh, S-A-M-A-D-A-I-D-A-N-E at gmail.com. And if you have, if your organization is interested in this topic, uh, I provide custom webinars. I'll be happy to share this message. message. And if, you, if you're a member of a, a chapter, a PMI chapter, I'm happy to come and speak and share the slides and, and more information, graphical information that's really very interesting that people are excited about. And just join me in this learning journey because I'm also a student of this and I'm learning. I'm just stopping. Uh, I'm not waiting until the end and then sharing what I learned. I'm, le I'm sharing as I go. And so I would love to have people, uh, to have partners in this journey. Well, thank you, Samad, for joining me on both the PM Hangout allowed me to use this audio for this podcast. I thoroughly enjoyed learning about the neuroscience and how I can become a better communicator to those in other cultures. I don't know about you guys, but I have a little bit of a headache after trying to absorb those concepts. And what I found uh, was helpful for me is I went back and listened to it a couple of times. And from that, I was able to pull out a couple of new nuggets and be able to have a clear understanding about what Samad was talking about. So I encourage you to go back at least listen to this episode at least one more time so you can capture all of the concepts that he's talking about. Uh, again, thanks, Samad. That was a great discussion. Now, I would ask if you would go to sensiblepm.com slash 12. That's sensiblepm.com slash 1-2. And share in the comments of the post one single concept that you learned from Samad as he taught us about neuroscience and how that communication will help in other cultures. 
take one concept and tell us what you've learned from that and how you can or will implement that as you talk to other people from other cultures. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Now, I'd like to ask a couple of favors. If you're not a member of the Sensible Project Manager Hangout yet on, on Google+, please come to that platform and come and join the in the conversations we have. Just like you've heard in this episode, we quite often bring on to the Hangout, which is held every Friday at 9 o'clock Pacific time. I bring on different guests. And then when I do that, quite often I will bring that to this podcast so you'll hear that here. But also, often we get together just a bunch of project managers from around the world and talk about project management concepts. So it's a great way to get to know other people in a different way, and especially uh, in a in a format in which you would not be able to do normally. Uh, I've been able to meet people all over the world that talk about project management. It's been very exciting. Now, secondly, I wonder if you could go to iTunes and give me a review on iTunes. I would love to be able to to receive that, find out a little bit better on how I can improve this podcast for you. And the other thing it does is as I get more reviews, it increases my rankings on iTunes and provides more exposure to other project managers throughout the world. Now, I want to announce two things. Uh, I have two series coming up that is going to be released here on the, the uh, Sensible Project Manager podcast. The first one is what I'm calling the mentoring series. It'll be released later on this week. And the concept there is uh, I, I work with a, a lady who is studying for her CAPM test. And what we've, what we're doing is we're sitting down every other week in helping her study for that test. And we just turned on the microphone and allow you to listen in on that discussion. And hopefully you'll be able to just follow along with us and prepare yourself. So especially if you are new to project management and you're either studying for the CAPM or the PMP, you can join in that conversation. And I will be releasing that series separately from my normal production of this uh, this podcast because I wanted to be able to provide that information for those new project managers, those that have already got their PMP and are not preparing for the desk. You can just skip those episodes. But this should be a great uh, way for you to prepare for your CAPM or your PMP if you're if you're studying for either one of those tests. Another series that I'm going to be bringing into this podcast is project management around the world. I'm actually leading uh, a second round of the PM Flash blog that occurred late last year, and the, this concept is going to be a little bit different. We're going to have a rolling flash blog that's going to occur every week, starting the first week in March and continuing on for seven weeks. And the concept is is that we're going to have bloggers all around the world blog about what project management is like in their part of the world. And then I will be bringing onto the PM Hangout those bloggers who will share that information, and I will release those as episodes here on the podcast. So look forward to those uh, two series that are coming up. I'm looking forward to bringing those to you. Now, one more thing, I am committing to you now that I'm going to be releasing this podcast on a more regular basis. My goal is to be able to release each week an episode, and this episode should be able to be released at the beginning of each week. Now, until next week, remember, a sensible project manager always looks for a practical way to manage a project to success. You've been listening to the Sensible Project Manager, Mark Philippi, on the Sensible Project Manager podcast. To learn more about practical project management, visit us at sensiblepm.com.